Thanks for being with us this morning. Yesterday on the program, we were speaking with Jason Tonelli. He is an angler, and he was talking about the restrictions when it comes to Chinook retention. And these were part of the restrictions, the measures that were announced a few months ago when it comes to uh, saving the Fraser River Chinook. But Jason Tonelli took the, uh, was saying that uh, the restrictions are so severe that they are causing a lot of hardship, not only for angers, anglers, not only for the recreational fishery, uh, but for other businesses as well. Well, it's definitely had a, a devastating impact on all marine communities. Uh, it's amazing to see the lack of people out there fishing. Uh, we're talking about spots on um, on weekends like today where you would see 100 boats. There's 10 boats. Uh, so there's been about an 80 to 90% reduction in sports fishing activity, and the industry in general is, is generally down 50 to 60%, if not more. And I would imagine, is this uh, people simply not coming because of the restrictions or cancelling uh, trips that they may have had planned? Yeah, that's exactly it. People uh, got the message, unfortunately, that uh, fishing was closed. Um, we are opening on July 15th in some areas and August 1st in other areas, but uh, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, one point that I really want to make, Jill, is that uh, despite these closures, uh, the fishing has been uh, fantastic. Like most people would tell you it's the best of fishing that they've seen in 30 or 40 years. All right, that was Jason Tonelli. He was on the program yesterday. Now, yesterday afternoon, I was able to catch up with Jonathan Wilkinson. He is the Federal Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, and he responded to a lot of Jason Tonelli's concerns. And we talked about what exactly is happening when it comes to Chinook retention and if there could be uh, some lightening of those restrictions to help out the sports fishermen and to help out those industries that are now hurting because of that. Take a listen to this conversation. Well, I would say first and foremost, I certainly um, feel um, very badly in terms of the impacts that, uh, that some of the decisions that we've had to take are having. I, I don't uh, in any way dismiss the concerns that have been raised with respect to some of the economic uh, implications associated with the protection of, of the Fraser Chinook salmon. But I would say that, you know, the decision was taken in the best interest of conservation. Twelve out of the 13 Fraser River Chinook stocks are endangered. Um, it serves nobody's interest in the long term to let these, uh, let these fish go extinct. It certainly doesn't serve the long-term interests of the recreational fishery. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I think it's important that uh, we take these kinds of decisions in the broader context. We've done an enormous amount of work to deal with some of the longer-term issues around habitat restoration and those kinds of things. But in the short term, if we do not ensure that enough of these are getting back to the spawning grounds, they will not continue to exist. Uh, one of the issues that's come up, in, and uh, Jason Tonelli mentioned this, saying that what they're seeing out in the water right now is the fish they are catching are hatchery-marked fish from the United States that have nothing to do with the Fraser, Fraser Chinook. And they wonder why you as the minister didn't make it so that there could have been a one or two catch uh, Chinook a day if they were hatchery fish from the United States. So I, I think Mr. Tonelli knows quite well um, the answer to that. I mean, the the, 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 the focus uh, is on phrasing the uh, Fraser River Chinook and ensuring that we are protecting them. They are typically commingled in the areas with other uh, fish species that are going through. As uh, as I think you're aware, we have simply made it a non-retention um, fishery during the period that the Fraser River Chinook are passing through, and as soon as they are done, then the retention fishery reopens. 
important uh, to note that, um, you know, we have to manage the fishery in a manner that actually accommodates the legitimate interests of, of all of the different fishers. We want to make sure that wreck fishers are not impacting the Fraser River Chinook. We also, in order to uh, to ensure that we are closing the uh, the um, the ability for First Nations to food, fish food and ceremonial while the Chinook are in the relevant area, we need to ensure that we are treating everybody fairly. As you know, there is constitutional priority with respect to food and ceremonial allocations for First Nations. And so in order for us to ensure that we are best protecting the Fraser River Chinook, we needed to ensure that there was non-retention across the board. Um, that is something that I think Mr. Tonelli is quite well aware of. But if they were only retaining hatchery fish from the United States, how would that have a negative impact on Fraser River Chinook? Well, it would have a, have a, an impact on Fraser River Chinook in a couple of ways. I mean, one is you'd have to make sure that that was all they were retaining. But the second is, um, as I said before, First Nations have a constitutional priority for food and ceremonial. If there is a retention fishery that, that is open, then the food and ceremonial fishery is open. One of the things that we have said to Mr. Tonelli and to others in the Recreational Fishery Organization is that we should be having a conversation going forward around the table where we have all of the relevant parties that is that includes the recreational fishers, environmental organizations that are concerned about conservation, First Nations uh, and other indigenous organizations, commercial fishers, to actually have a conversation about are there ways in which we could do things differently that could accommodate the legitimate interests of all of these parties. We will be starting a table like that within the next month or so. Um, and that is something that we committed to the recreational fishers to do at the time that I made the decision. Uh, you talk about uh, the the constitutional rights, and certainly uh, everybody would agree that 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 is in place for First Nations fisheries. Uh, so, is the DFO? Are there officers? Are they keeping track of the gillnet openings that have been ha- happening on the Fraser? And there have been quite a many, uh, quite a few. Uh, are they keeping track of how many of the very Chinook that we're supposed to be saving? How many are being captured in those openings? So again, the, the food and ceremonial is closed uh, for the periods of time that the Fraser Chinook are in the relevant area, but absolutely in terms of ensuring that we are doing what we need to do to, uh, to uh, you know, make good on the commitments that we've made and make good on the, on the conservation measures that we've put into place. Uh, our conservation protection officers definitely are involved in, in observing and in ensuring that, that the regulations are going to be complied with. But there certainly have been gillnet openings uh, for First Nations while Chinook are in the Fraser River. So again, um, the way in which the closures work with respect to retention are only when these relevant stocks are in the relevant area. Um, and in that context, we are trying to ensure, working very hard to ensure that, uh, that the, the regulations that we put into place are respected. Our conservation and protection officers work to do that every day, and they will continue to do so. Right, but just to, to be clear, while the, the the season has been closed to anglers, they've not been allowed to retain any Chinook. There certainly have been gillnet openings where there has been Chinook retention, albeit uh, for food and ceremonial purposes. No, uh, it, it, there, there is no opening for food and ceremonial purposes while the, the relevant Fraser Chinook stocks are in the area. If, in fact, there have been gillnets that have been used, they would be out of compliance with the regulations, and that is the role of the conservation and protection officers to ensure that the regulations are complied with. Um, uh, go, and going back to, to the hatchery fish, is there any chance uh, that you will revisit the idea of allowing uh, fishermen, the anglers, uh, who say uh, what they catch is really such a small percentage anyway, uh, if they were only keeping those hatchery fish that would help their industry and wouldn't impact uh, the Fraser River Chinook? Is there any appetite to go back and look at that? 
Absolutely, and I've told them that. Um, so the, the concept of a marked selective fishery is something that they have raised, and we have said that we are open to that conversation, but it needs to be a conversation that involves other stakeholders who have interests in this. That includes the commercial fishery, it includes environmental organizations, and it includes uh, Indigenous leadership. And so we will be starting a table. One of the major areas of discussion uh, will be the idea of a marked selective fishery. Um, so we are actually absolutely responding to the request that they've made, but it's certainly important that we do this in a manner that's going to be workable and acceptable by all parties uh, that, that have an interest in the fishery. And what do you say to the anglers who still maintain that they were picked because they're a very visible group and uh, they say, again, uh, they take perhaps the smallest number of fish and that uh, stopping the anglers from keeping Chinook isn't really going to do anything, uh, the, but they're being, they're being chosen and they're being, they're being the ones uh, that are being told they can't maintain it because it's a political decision. Look, I, I mean, with all due respect uh, to, uh, to Mr. Tonelli, I mean, that, that's just not, not a reasonable argument. I mean, the, the easiest decision for a fisheries minister like myself to make would have been to simply leave it open. There would have been no controversy on the part of, of the recreational fishers um, if I had done that. But I would not be doing my job and the job that Canadians would expect of me if I was to knowingly put Fraser Chinook salmon on the path to extinction. That it would be an irresponsible use of, of the authorities that I have. My first and foremost, my responsibility is to conservation so that we will have a sustainable uh, fishery for the future. And that is exactly why I took the decision that I took. And like you said, uh, though, so is there room to go back and look at this uh, to see what impact it's had and perhaps uh, use that information for any future decisions? Well, I, I, as I say, uh, absolutely. I've already committed to uh, to the recreational fishers to have a table at which we can discuss issues like a more selective fishery. But it needs to be a table that has all of the relevant stakeholders involved in the conversation. We will be starting that soon. And, uh, and I, I, my, my full um, belief is that the recreational fishers will engage that conversation with Gusto, and, and so they should. Well, the only thing I would say is, you know, this is a part of a broader set of biodiversity-related concerns. I mean, we have a number, well, we have over 700 species in Canada that are either uh, threatened with extinction or, or have been recommended for listing under the, the Species of Risk Act. We need to be finding pathways collectively to ensure that we are addressing these issues, uh, stopping the declines, uh, not allowing species to go extinct, and doing so in a way that is as sensitive as we possibly can to legitimate economic, economic interests like the recreational fishers. That is exactly what I am endeavoring to do, and, and I'm certainly looking for partners uh, across the piece to help find pathways to do that. In the same way that we did for the South Resident Killer Whales, we, we will be working on that with, with respect to the Chinook issue, and, and I am encouraging all relevant stakeholders to be part of that process. All right, that was Federal Fisheries Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Well, there was a big announcement this past Thursday. The government saying, the provincial government saying that 2,300 new childcare spaces are on the way for Vancouver families. Along with the city of Vancouver, together over the next three years, we will create 2,300 new childcare spaces for families living here in the city of Vancouver. That was Premier John Horgan speaking at the announcement. Uh, We also heard from the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, uh, on Thursday. Vancouver has an estimated shortfall of uh, approximately 17,000 childcare spaces. And access to affordable, quality childcare remains a challenge for many families. 
So let's bring in Sharon Gregson, a spokesperson for the Coalition of Child Care Advocates of BC. Sharon, thanks so much for being with us again. Good morning. My pleasure. Uh, that number that the mayor just put out, uh, 17,000, uh, a shortfall of 17,000 spaces, uh, is that an accurate number, do you think? I think it's fairly close. Uh, it's um, derived from looking at birth rates, numbers of parents in the labor force, and the number of childcare that we have already. So it's a good number. It's a good target, yes. Uh, so with this announcement, uh, and the announcement was really that there will be more than 2,300 new spaces built and uh, brought in over the next uh, three years in Vancouver, how confident are you that will actually happen? Well, we've always known that achieving a quality, affordable childcare system was very doable. It just takes political will. And I think that's what we've seen demonstrated today or this week from the Premier and the Mayor. They've recognized that childcare is high on the priority list for uh, not just for families with young children, but for grandparents, for employers. Uh, And so if they're committed to doing it, I absolutely believe it can be done. Uh, What are some of the obstacles, uh, though? Because it's one thing to say we've got the money or we want to make this. And part of this announcement was to incorporate these spaces into existing spaces, uh, schools, community centres, what have you. What are some of the obstacles, though, of, of actually getting these spaces up and running? Well, it means that, that um, public partners have to work together. So the local government has to work together with the school district, with licensing, which is in the Ministry of Health, has to work with the community centres and the park board. So everybody's got to come around the table. And we do have in Vancouver a joint child care council, which brings those public partners together. So Vancouver has always been a leader on childcare, no matter which council is, is taking the lead. And, and so this really is the next step for their leadership to make this happen. Uh, and I know that you've been a, a strong advocate of $10 a day childcare. How does this announcement fit into uh, that and as far as the affordability? It does fit into the $10 a day plan because it's using public funds through public partners to grow public assets. And so that's what we need to uh, to achieve a quality, affordable childcare system. I think it's really important to think back. The $10 a day plan was launched in 2011. If government of the day had embraced the plan, um, where we would be today if we had started creating those childcare spaces that we needed back in 2011, we wouldn't be facing the crisis that we still have today. So the new spaces are incredibly welcome by families in Vancouver. Folks around the rest of the province, of course, are, are waiting for their childcare chaos to be solved as well. We're moving on affordability. We're seeing $10-a-day prototype sites across the province. We know there are universal fee reductions and affordability subsidies that parents can apply for. But we also have to focus on the workforce. Who's going to work in these new spaces? And do we have we looked at that or have we focused on that? Because it does seem like that's a big part of it. If we don't have people working there or people able to open the spaces and run them, uh, then then how do you do that? So we do have um, the ability to open the spaces. So that would could be opened through the school district holding the license to operate or one of the community center associations or one of the local not-for-profit organizations. But what we need to focus on is early childhood educators to provide the quality care. There have been... Um, publicly funded wage enhancements announced. One of them started last September, a dollar an hour. So 
ECEs are already benefiting from that. There'll be another dollar added in April 2020 and lots of investment in professional development. But that's not enough. We need a provincial wage grid for early childhood educators so that it's a well-paid as well as well-respected workforce. Um, I got a, a letter sent to me, and this was from a parent in Vancouver, and, and not expecting uh, you to comment on the the, the uh, letter itself. But uh, the reason this was sent to me, it was in light of the announcement on Thursday. And this is from, uh, apparently this letter was sent to parents of Tennyson School, which is one of the schools that's currently being rebuilt. It was one of the seismic uh, schools. They're building a brand new school. This letter went to parents that are in the TOS program, which is the childcare program there, uh, saying that the new school school actually is not going to have as many spaces as the old school and that uh, they are going to keep up to 45 spaces, uh, but they're going to lose uh, about 20 spaces or, or more than that. Um, is it concerning that that it appears in this case that we're building a brand new school, uh, but not even keeping up to the current demand for childcare spaces? Well, we're talking here about school-age childcare um, and Absolutely, school-age childcare has got to be a priority. The biggest crisis in BC is for infant and toddler care, but the second biggest is in school-age care. And it's our position that every single elementary school in the province should have enough school-age childcare to accommodate the children who are attending that school. Part of the problem is that as new schools have been built, they're smaller than old schools. And so they don't have as much multi-purpose space that can double up as school space during the day for uh, resource rooms or small gymnasiums and then used after hours for childcare. So absolutely, this is one of the reasons why childcare needs to move into the Ministry of Education so that all schools can prioritize providing childcare as well as K-12. Uh, right. And, and I would imagine that's going to be a, big, a bigger issue in that we're seeing more and more of these schools that are seismically being upgraded. And you're right, the, the new schools are smaller, the spaces are smaller, uh, but, it, but it almost seems like a lack of, of looking ahead if we're, we're no, we know that the space, spaces are smaller, but there's still that demand for, for childcare uh, at the school age. So part of the problem, Jill, is that the Ministry of Education doesn't have a mandate to deal with childcare. They're focused on K-12, and so their schools are are meeting the needs of the K-12 system. That's why childcare needs to move out of the Ministry for Children and Families and into the Ministry of Education, so that we can actually look at the needs of early childhood education as well as K-12. And so when schools are being renovated, rebuilt, new-built, that we include the needs of children in younger ages. And so schools can actually be far more useful to families and communities. Uh, what else would you like to see? Because it's it certainly, as you've mentioned, it's uh, we're, we're talking about before school-age care and then uh, school-age care as well, which which it seems like the two are, are separate, which which doesn't make a ton of sense because we're talking about the same kids that are, that are going through these different uh, stages. What else do you think needs to be done to ensure there is uh, a, a child care uh, program model that works for everybody? Well, we've always said that the province has to move on three fronts with childcare simultaneously. Can't focus on any one. Has to focus on affordability for families. Have to focus on creating more spaces to meet the diverse needs of families, not just Monday to Friday, nine to five. And we also have to invest in the ECE workforce. Those three things have to be done simultaneously with the vision of in 10 years, 
we have the quality affordable childcare system that British Columbians clearly want. All the polling shows that 90% of British Columbians think investment in a quality affordable childcare system is important. So the government has to remain focused. They have to create a capital budget, continue to fund the operating to actually create these spaces that families can access. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. Uh, But Sharon, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Always good to talk to you. My pleasure, Jill. Take care. Well, if you were having a medical procedure done, say getting stitches or some other procedure at the emergency room, would it be top of mind to pull out your phone and snap a photo or make a video of it? And if you did want to do that, would you think it would be just allowed and there would be no issue? Well, this is becoming more and more of an issue in emergency rooms. And joining me to talk about it is Dr. James Stempian, department head at the emergency department at the Saskatoon Health Region. Uh, Dr. Stempian, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Sure. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So how much of an issue is it that uh, people in the emergency department are wanting to document everything on their phones? Well, it it depends what you mean by issue. I mean, I guess we're seeing it more and more is a fair thing to say that um, since cell phones are essentially ubiquitous, people are pulling up their cell phone and wanting to take a picture or short video of um, of, videos. procedures that they're undergoing, but usually something like the we concentrated on lacerations because that's a fairly common sort of scenario. Right. So you did a study on this or, or asked people and, and got more information. What did your study on this find? Well, found that uh, something like 80% of the patients were considering taking a video and certainly the majority of patients thought um, it should be allowed and it was a good idea. Um, when we also surveyed um, healthcare providers, nurses, and physicians in the emergency room on what they thought, and it was a smaller percentage, is about a third were um, in favor of um, video recording uh, versus the patients, where it was more like two thirds. Hmm, interesting. And so, are there rules then? I guess does it go emergency room to emergency room? It's not like it's one blanket rule, but are there rules in some places where perhaps phones aren't allowed? You know, there's no, uh, the rules are, as you say, they're hodgepodge, like they're from um, area to area, from hospital to hospital. And now in Saskatchewan, in Saskatchewan, we have one healthcare authority. So that was one of our recommendations that we should probably have a, a blanket rule across the province, which would make it easier because it, it ends up coming down to the individual clinician to say whether yes or no, you can do this or not. So if we had a rule across the country or across the province, for sure, it would make it easier for us. And I suppose one of the issues, too, is is privacy and that it would be different to be taking a photo or a video when you're in an exam room or if it's just you and the, the doctor uh, co- compared to, say, being in the waiting area when there might be other people around. Sure, that's exactly what we found, that if you're in a, a closed space, a, a door you could close, you couldn't hear other people. Um, most clinicians had less concern about uh, someone videoing the last few stitches of a procedure, for example. But um, a lot of our emergency departments, uh, our emergency department in Saskatoon and a lot across the country, um, you're doing some care in a more opened area or a curtain space where you could hear other people talking. You might be able to see other physicians or nurses walking by or other patients walking by or family. And you'd have to get sort of uh, consent from all those people if you're in a more open area before you start recording. Did the study find as well why it is that people want to document that particular moment? Yeah, sure. Most of the time it was just uh, a, moment, a momento or 
so they could share it with their friends or so they could just keep it so, you know, something to know what happened with their procedure. So most of the time it was just interest. Hmm. Interesting uh, to, to think that, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it, it can be a stressful time for people that you would think that that's uh, top of mind is to pull out the phone and to, to document it. Um, there were some issues as well, I guess, with the idea of it might be if something went wrong that you would then have evidence or you would try and use it against the doctor. Yeah, we went through a whole list of reasons why physicians or nurses would not be in favor. And that was a, there was a minority of that group who said, um, you know, they didn't feel comfortable being videotaped um, uh, for, for that reason. It was less than 20%, but that did come up. And I, I guess, you know, more and more we live in a litigious society and maybe people have that in the back of their mind. But again, that wasn't the primary reason. The primary reason healthcare providers, healthcare providers didn't go for that was mainly privacy concerns. Right. Uh, what about the issue of the phone itself? And I mean, phones go everywhere with us. So we drop them. We, we don't clean them all that often. Is, it, is, is there an issue of cleanliness as well? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Phones are dirty things. And not in our study, but in a, another study, I think they looked at the bacteria that could be carried on a phone. And there's a variety of bacteria that we're walking around with. And as you said, we drop our phone. We don't clean it. Um, and so uh, the fact that you're bringing in essentially a dirty item to the emergency or holding it near a procedure that's supposed to be sterile probably isn't perfect. Um, but, yeah, I think that's something to be considered as well. So what would you do uh, as a doctor if somebody pulled out the phone uh, during a procedure? What would, what, would your, what would your response to that be? Well, I've had that, had that happen, um, you know, half a dozen times for sure. That uh, There's a couple times we're in a a closed room the door was closed it was only the patient and I and um, it was the last few stitches in a little procedure and um, in, in emergency medicine you have to sort of create a relationship with your patient on a fairly close quick basis and we did we were getting along he seemed like a nice person and uh, I had no problem with him recording the, the last few stitches and uh, he used it for a memento I, I assume um, but there have been times where we've been in more of a curtain space. Uh, people are walking by. You can hear other patients talking or um, uh, being uncomfortable because of why they're in the emergency. And, and so I had to say no because, uh, you know, we really, this isn't a private space. And I prefer if you didn't record and, and they put their phone away. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, we would think too in a... And one thing, like you said, for, for sutures or something, it's it would be more relaxed. But I, I'm imagining, you know, an emergency situation where time is of the essence and somebody's saying, oh, wait, 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 just wait a second. I have to bring the phone out and document this. It just, it kind of, you know, reflects just how we've become so used to recording everything. Yeah. And to be honest, um, we looked at, you know, lacerations where the patient was stable I've never seen a situation where um, where the patient was on death's door or we really had to do a procedure quickly to save the, a limb or the life of the patient where a family member said, do you mind if I record this? Usually, um, since that's a more high-pressure situation, everyone's just asking us to do our job. Right. Uh, so do you think that this leads to, or will your study perhaps at least get the conversation started that maybe there does need to be a policy when it comes to uh, ERs right across the country? Yeah, for sure. Um, we were going to contact or have already contacted the Saskatchewan Health Authority and we'll hopefully uh, 
have that conversation started. And there's the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, um, which sort of makes policies for across the country for emergency physicians. And uh, one of our plans was to talk to them as well and see if we can come up with some sort of national recommendations. All right. Well, it's uh, interesting indeed. Not something uh, we, we think about very often, but I suppose if you're in that scenario, it's, uh, it, it is happening more, more and more for sure. Uh, Dr. Stempian, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you coming on the show. Okay. Thank you for giving me a call. We have been focused a lot on Surrey since the last civic elections because the re-elected mayor, Doug McCallum, ran on a promise to replace the RCMP with a civic force. And that has caused some debate since that was announced, even though in his first day back in office, he moved a motion to do just that. Uh, whether or not that's the best move, still, uh, well, you get a different opinion depending on who you talk to. But my next guest has taken a look at policing in various cities and municipalities in BC. And Dermot Travis joins us on the line now. He is the Executive Director of Integrity BC. Dermot, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Jill. Uh, Was it because of what's happening in Surrey that you decided to do this and take a look at other uh, municipalities? Most definitely. Surrey and the Capital Regional District, Victoria in particular, uh, a lot of people were throwing out various arguments. And I think one of the things that's been lost in trying to engage the public on this are the actual facts related to the situation on the ground. One of the things that completely flabbergasted me when I found out about it was that Richmond, B.C. has the lowest ratio of police officers to 100,000 population in Canada for any city over 100,000. And Victoria has the highest. Hmm. Interesting. Which... It leaves you in that position of, are we actually ensuring that that ratio reflects the criminal activity on the ground? Surrey, again, is at the low end of the pack. Uh, Victoria, 233 officers uh, per 100,000. And Richmond doesn't even break 100. causes you to ask, are we ensuring when local budgets are set, And when provincial budgets are set, because also forgotten in the debate, is the fact that both the province and the federal government uh, contribute to the cost of local RCMP policing, um, making certain that they have adequate resources to deal with the situation on the ground. One of the um, unfortunate aspects to relying on the RCMP is that you don't also have a local police board. And that quite often can result in priorities getting set that don't necessarily reflect uh, the local community's needs. Uh, So you looked at places uh, throughout the province uh, with both uh, civic forces and the RCMP and looking at the the coverage, uh, the number of officers per population, as well as the cost. That's right. It's in the province today. And again, one of the things you'll find with all of the regional police forces, such as Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Capital Regional District, you have one community, one city that always seems to carry the burden, which is the largest of the cities in uh, Metro Vancouver, obviously Vancouver. Uh, In uh, Capital Regional District, Victoria, in the Okanagan, it's Kelowna, uh, Abbotsford, Fraser Valley. Quite often, the difference between that high city And the lowest in the area is absolutely astounding. Souk, which has a fairly high crime rate, 
is looking at roughly $130 per capita, I believe, and Victoria more than $500 per capita. And what's often forgotten is that these cities, uh, Victoria, Vancouver, in the region. So they end up having people coming into the city from the bedroom communities for entertainment and other purposes, and they also end up having to incur uh, the full freight on any policing needs for those individuals. The bedroom communities get to sit back and only uh, budget for those very local needs that hit them directly without contributing to the bigger budget. Uh, and, and even looking at other places, too, and you've mentioned some of the places on Vancouver Island, but it's been brought up as well, uh, particularly because we've been talking so much about Surrey and uh, whether or not it's going to shift to a regional force. Uh, then you also have White Rock, which wh- White Rock itself is a very small area, uh, but has its own RCMP. It does. And one of the interesting things, again, with the stats, all from Statistics Canada, by the way, uh, there are eight communities in Canada that rely on the RCMP uh, for local policing. Uh, Sorry, nine. Eight of them are in British Columbia. And that goes back to the days when we used to have a provincial police force. And one day the provincial police force was gone, and they were known as the RCMP after that. They were all transferred into the RCMP as officers, and they simply picked up the ball and kept going with it. This is going back into the last century. But there is a good argument to make uh, for provincial police forces rather than the RCMP. One of the uh, challenges for the RCMP beyond the local police board is that they currently have a vacancy rate of more than 7% in British Columbia uh, and some very, very significant recruitment problems uh, that are challenging the very policies that the RCMP has relied on so they're, uh, for recruitment. So they're lessening the standards in order to try to get more applicants. Some of the standards they're lessening, uh, too, would include that they might entertain those with criminal records uh, as potential police officers. And when I saw this week uh, an editor's note, I thought it was kind of cute, Burnaby's going to increase uh, the number of their officers in the RCMB by 20 to catch up uh, with absolutely no change virtually over the last decade. The RCMP might not have 20 available officers to do that. Uh, Surrey, we're looking at more than a vacancy rate of more than 50 positions. Uh, In Richmond, when I was using those stats, those stats also include the 27 who are assigned to the Vancouver International Airport. We have a wonderful opportunity. The B.C. government has a wonderful opportunity to give us a really good debate on what's going to be the best policing model in White Rock, but also in Metro Vancouver and the Capital Regional District. And how do we get there? Uh, right, because, I mean, at the end of the day, too, people are, it, it comes down to what are we paying for, what are we getting, and uh, is, it the best, is it the best use? Because every community is a bit different. One size, uh, one size certainly doesn't fit all when we're talking about policing. That's right. And, and a police officer actually reached out to me this week uh, from the interior and pointed out a number of the challenges that they face in terms of having to interact uh, with the RCMP, none of which is a bad reflection on the RCMP, strictly uh, a reflection of the reality of where they're at today. And 
in his regard, not only are you looking at the vacancy rate, you're also looking at unlimited uh, time off for health issues, which at one level is good. I think that there's an issue with some of the police forces in BC that they're over so overstretched that their officers are now overstressed. And that is you know, one of the causes, if you will, behind some of the videos we see or some of the uh, arrests we hear about where an officer may have used excessive force are words that you wouldn't be using around your family dinner table. And we need to make certain that we don't have uh, such a tight ship on local policing in terms of the number of officers available that they ultimately get so much overtime. And and this is happening in Victoria that uh, they end up in a stress situation. I I drew the illustration uh, with the fentanyl crisis. You know, I think 12 uh, fentanyl overdoses in 2012, uh, more than a thousand in 2017. And all of those are going to require a police call. That means police officers are going to be going to that particular uh, site in order to deal with the overdose. It's got to be hard on them. Uh, seeing those number of people overdosing and quite often killing, uh, quite often dying as a result of it, and having to then go home, have a family life, go back to the office, do the paperwork, etc. All of this is getting lost, unfortunately, because the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, has managed this whole debate in such a way that everybody is now arguing over his management style of it rather than What's the best policing model? And that's what we should be striving for. All right. Well, it is an interesting conversation for sure, and one uh, that is going to continue. Uh, We will leave it there, though. Uh, Dermot, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Well, when we talk about drug overdose numbers and the response and the need for treatment centers and safe places for people, we often focus on the more urban centers and the more densely populated areas. But there is a new overdose prevention site and it has opened in Powell River. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is the mayor of Powell River, Dave Formosa. Dave, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, Good morning, Jill. Uh, How much of a need was there or is there for a site like this in Powell River? Well, I guess to put it in perspective, uh, Powell River is the uh, second highest, has the second highest uh, overdoses due to the fentanyl uh, opiate crisis in the Vancouver Coastal Health on a per capita basis with Vancouver. So if you, you look at Vancouver Coastal Health, we uh, in Powell River are basically on a per capita basis. We're a much smaller population. But we're in the same category. Which has got to be frightening or frustrating for you as the mayor that it's such a big issue. No doubt. We, we don't, we, we're not happy about it. and uh, We don't enjoy it. But we're, we have a team of dedicated uh, professionals and volunteers and council folks uh, that are working very hard uh, on the issue. Uh, so the the center has opened now. It was a bit uh, delayed getting this opened. Uh, do you think is this uh, one of the best tools? Do you think to try and combat this? Well, I, I think it's it's uh, definitely um, a great tool to keep our our people alive. Um, you know, the, it's controversial. There's no doubt about it where it's located. Um, but when you think of it, that could be my son, my grandson. 
you know, your your daughter, uh, and they found themselves in this position. Well, now they can go uh, twice a day. The, the center is open. They can use, and there's somebody there to watch out and make sure that uh, that they're alive when they're when they're when they're done. And I think that's the solace that I take. And when you say it's been controversial uh, in the location, what has been some of the pushback you've been hearing uh, about this? Well, just generally, the location is kind of it's downtown and uh, next to a little strip mall. It's below a new subdivision. It's uh, rather close to the Catholic Church. Um, it's on the main drag. Uh, it's, you know, it's well situated. It's not <clears throat> sort of like right, right, right out in the center. You know, it, it's kind of camouflaged. It's right next door to a very popular dog park. And folks just, uh, they have a, you know, have a hard time grasping uh, the issue that, you know, um, intravenous drug users can use an illegal product right there with assistance. I mean, you know, it's not been a huge outcry, but quiet outcry. Uh, I think with compassion. Right. So, and, and as part of that, also, I, I would imagine when we hear uh, com, uh, concerns like that, often it's because people would prefer uh, that rather than than using uh, twice a day or however often you're using a, a site like that, uh, people would prefer uh, that there was treatment. Correct. That they were gathered up and taken away for treatment, and you know that doesn't work unless the you know the patient is willing. So, yeah, I think also. You know, folks that are in the area think that there's a better location and it doesn't have to be there. You know, not so much they're against helping the people. It's personal, I guess. And I would imagine, too, that Powell River is not a huge city in that people know people more than, I guess there's not the anonymity that you would get in a larger city. Do you think that comes into play as well? Um, I don't know if that's so much, much it that, uh, you know, we tend to know each other a little more, although our demographic is changing because, you know, we are growing and, and it's a, a busy little bustling city uh, the last two years. But um, I think really it's just more the stigma and uh, where it's where it is. So you get folks around that area, you know, that NIMBY, you know. Um, but I know there is compassion, but uh, it is, you know, it is controversial, but it's quiet controversial. It's not like you know, I've been a mayor now for a long time, and and it's not like they're, you know, they're picketing or flying into city hall or my office. It's just you know, people calling me and and just saying really, and you know, and, and like I said, it's not huge, but uh, but it's it's there. It's a it's a changing time, isn't it? It is, definitely. But I suppose the, the alternative is what's been happening in Powell River. And like you said, on a per capita basis, it's it's got a problem when it comes to overdose and when it comes to drug use. So the alternative to this would be continuing on uh, with what uh, the community is seeing, which from what I understand is, uh, you know, there are overdoses throughout the community in parks, yeah. in businesses and places where uh, if people, I mean, if people are concerned that this is kind of in the middle of things, well, wasn't this happening in the middle of things anyway? You're right. You're exactly right, Jill. It was. So that's kind of how we, we, we discuss this with the citizens that bring up concern, or I do, is that uh, the whole idea of the site was the proper location, you know, that was chosen with peer groups. So, you know, our committees that meet on this issue, we have users as part of the, uh, 
of the group, part of the, uh, the cat group. And um, that, this is why they picked this area, because it's in a good location, uh, close proximity to where, you know, a lot of the clients live. And they were kind of hanging around in the area anyway, and that's the point I make. And, and I believe, you know, the agreement that uh, we have uh, is that the operators um, make sure that there are no loathering. So after somebody uh, has their medicine or whatever you want to call it, that they move on. They don't, they don't loather around the area. And uh, so, you know, it's a wait-see. Um, it's agreed that if it doesn't work out and causes uh, problems for the local businesses and offices and, and um, the residents aren't too heavy in that area, but it's visible uh, from residents, you know, uh, that are up on the hill, the new, a new subdivision. But um, it was really, you know, thought out and you, and you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and what is it, do you think, or what led to Powell River being in this position in that uh, that uh, the overdose crisis is so prevalent in Powell River? You know, I don't know. I grew up here. You know, I was born here. I grew up here. I mean, we've always had issues with drugs like every other community. Um, we're isolated. Um, maybe folks get a little more bored than, than others. Uh, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's not like you see people all over the streets and like, you know, you're downtown Vancouver and in the East end and, and uh, you know, issues in that regard. But um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know why I really, really can't put my hand on it, you know, but uh, the community is working hard to try and help these folks uh, get treatment available. Um, and we'd rather have a controlled situation than an uncontrolled situation. And we don't want to lose any more of our teenagers and our young people. You know, we've, you know, friends of mine have lost their, their children. And that's why I support this. And do you think enough is being done as well to go after the dealers and to go after whoever it is that's peddling the fentanyl? Well, I think the RCMP, we have our RCMP contract here. Um, I think they do all they can given the resources, you know. Um, our, our problem is that when we have uh, an RCMP member that is off for medical needs or, or um, uh, child care because one of the members just had a baby, we don't get backfilled. And I don't, I don't know if it's the same in the lower mainland, but because we are isolated, um, we don't get backfilled. So if we have members off, and sometimes you can have two, three, four off, well, now, out of a complement of uh, 18 or 19, and you've got four members off, and they're off for quite a bit of time, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big percentage of your force. And so that doesn't help us. Um, so folks that we have in plain clothes end up in, you know, bums in, in seats in patrol cars and just out on the beat. So that's an issue. And, um, you know, but uh, the, the police pretty well know where the where the these folks are, and, and I know one of the frustrations is that uh, you know because let's be honest that another big issue is crime that goes along with this you know B and E's and and folks trying to keep enough cash in their hand to keep uh, using, um, you know that that's another issue for us, and then the police catch them and they take them to court, and then the court just lets them go for whatever reason. I, I don't know, but I hear that a lot from my chief, you know, that 
we get them into court, but you know, they're back on the street. So I don't know. It's where I don't think we're tough enough. No, and that's that's an issue, certainly not only in Powell River. That's uh, something we hear in many, many communities. Uh, you mentioned crime, and I, I suppose uh, the irony wasn't uh, the the site itself was delayed because of a break-in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you heard about that, did you? Yes. Yeah, so it was quite, uh, you know, it was disappointing. Yes, the site was broken into, and uh, the items within uh, the facility were, were stolen, and... Um, I don't know exactly what what all the items were, but that delayed the opening. And uh, yeah, I know the team was was disappointed, and my counselors were disappointed, and uh, and I'm sure the Vancouver Coastal Health Group were disappointed. They're trying to help these individuals, and uh, you know, here here it's something for our hard to house group, and uh, yeah, they're breaking in and and stealing things in there, so. Yeah, it uh, it really pulls on your heartstrings. And uh, just before I let you go, we mentioned uh, treatment earlier. Are there d- options for people? Like you said, you can really only help somebody if they want to go into treatment. But if somebody is using this site, uh, is there the option then if people are seeking out treatment to get that? Well, that's what uh, I understand. I understand that if they want to reach out, they, you know, they are manned by professional folks uh, from the ministry. Um, and that if somebody wants wants help, uh, help is available. But I think we all know that when a, an addict decides they want help, right at that point, they need to be taken into hand and taken to a home or a facility or somewhere and nurtured and played cards with and, and help to detox and um, keep them in busy and, uh, and uh, stay by their sides until a bed comes available. And um, I don't believe we have such uh, a facility that's funded to do that because, you know, they may say yes today, but you know what happens, the cravings, and then bang, they're gone. So you need to be able to have the funds and the facility and the, um, you know, the workers or the trained personnel or even volunteers that can stay with these people. And I only say this out of, out of experience, you know, watching friends over the years and helping friends over the years. If you don't uh, keep them busy and, and stay by their side and encourage them, and et cetera, because you know that you don't get a bed the next day or the next day. It, sometimes it takes weeks or months because they can't afford to pay the, you know, 20 grand or whatever it is to go into private care. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a certainly a, a difficult situation. Uh, we will leave it there, uh, Mayor Formosa. Thank you so much, though, for joining us and talking about this this morning. Appreciate your time. You take care. Have a great day.